Edward Mote was born in 1797, just outside of London, England. The son of pub owners, he was often neglected, so he spent much of his free time running the city streets. At the age of 18, he heard the gospel message for the first time, that message that Jesus Christ came down to save sinners, of whom he was one and of whom I am and who we all are. He responded to this message. He was saved and baptized. And he spent the next 37 years building cabinets. And at the age of 55, he felt a call to ministry, so he became a pastor. And for the next 21 years, he did not miss a Sunday in the pulpit. But Edward's Mo- Edward Moat's real mark in the church happened during his time as the cabinet maker. You see, Edward Moat wrote hymns. He was prolific. He, he wrote over a hundred hymns. And one of his works, originally published anonymously, has become a standard and one of the most beloved hymns of the church. You see, it was Edward Moat who, who first put these words to paper. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Edward Mote had experienced much of what the world had to offer at a young age. And from experience, he knew that this world was not for him and that this world would fail him. So he put his hope in the only one that will never fail, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the words of this hymn don't simply speak to the life and experience of of Edward Mote this morning. I think they prophetically speak to the text we'll be looking at today. Because we're going to see despair of a people who put their hope and trust in things of this world, things that will ultimately be judged and destroyed. But because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you and I can have hope, real hope. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. And while you're turning there, let's set the scene. We need to remember where we are at the book of Revelation. We're almost at the end. If you remember last week, Ryan Salhavy described this as the middle of the end. And what we've seen is this unholy trinity of Satan and the beast in Babylon. They've grown in power. And they've grown in stolen glory. And they become greater and greater in their power and greater and greater in their opposition to God and greater and greater in their oppression of God's people. And because we're in the middle of the end, as Ryan said last week, chapter 17 and 19 are this non-linear, multi-layered sort of glob of this experience. The way I like to describe it is, is this. The enemy has reached the climax of evil and power in terms of human in terms of humanity. It's literally as bad as it can ever be. As bad as it can ever be. The most powerful set of people, the most powerful enemies of God have gathered, and God shows up. And God looks around, and he sees Satan, and he sees Babylon, and he sees the beast, and he goes, flick, and they're gone. Where we are right now is Mid-flick. We are right in the middle of a flick. 
That's what God is, is, is about to do. It's all coming to an end for the enemies of God. So what do we do with that? It, it's, it's hard to capture the nuances of a flick, but just hang in there. Hang in there. A, uh, a great hallelujah is literally coming the next chapter. But it's darkest before the dawn, and it's dark right now because the great enemy of God, Babylon, is about to fall. The great harlot that, that was highlighted last week is about to fall. And just as I mentioned, this sort of mismatch of, of things that are happening, in this chapter we have a, a mis, mismatch of things that are happening. We see pronouncement, we see judgment, and we see lament. And in the middle, we're going to see a very clear call to the church, the bride of Christ. It's a call of action, but it's also a call of hope. And the reason it's a call of hope is because the message is clear to, to us as the children of God. This world is not for us. Everything this world has to offer us will fail and will be destroyed. And there's only one place to put our hope, the creator, redeemer, and judge of the world. We are called to him and to him alone. So let's jump into chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, chapter 18, we're going to start at verse 1. Let's read 1 through 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich, from the power of her luxurious living. First of all, we need to look at this proclamation. Here's a message. It's important to look at the messenger. The messenger came from heaven. Remember, the beast came out of a pit. Direct correlation and contradiction. This isn't human-made. Also, the whole, earth, the whole earth, the whole world, was filled with the light of this messenger. Remember way back in the beginning, the first words that God spoke when he, he made everything? Let there be light. And if we skip forward to a, a few chapters further in the book of Revelation, at the very end, there's the new Jerusalem where there is no more sun or moon because God is the light of the city. The whole earth is lit with the message from this messenger because it is a message from God. And what is this message? It's a funeral dirge. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. Now the big question in the room, the big question in church history is, who and what is Babylon? I've talked a lot about this the last few weeks with some, some friends and folks here at church. I even had one person uh, here at EBF try and convince me that the Cubs are Babylon. He has a full dissertation of it. If you're interested, I'd be happy to point him to you. I did say that I would mention it as a bad interpretation, and that's what I just did. But it's not the Cubs. You know, the, the, the readers who would have read this in John's time, in the first century, they almost inevitably would have thought of, of Rome. Because like Babylon before it, Rome was the great seat of power and of luxury and corruption and like Babylon before it, Rome had used its military power to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. 
Rome was always set against God, like Babylon. It was always set against his people. But, but really, Babylon's more universal than, than one or two great societies. It's, it's a symbol that stands for all the ungodly, religious, political, social, and economic systems that humans have created. One scholar describes Babylon as the global village of godless power which determines daily life for every person at any time in history. Another commentator puts it this way, the great city is every city and no city. It is civilized man, mankind organized apart from God. It has its embodiment in every age. So let's stop and think about this for a moment. Cities are made up and made by people. So this system, this village, this city, this society that drives and controls the, the politics and the power, the economics and the prosperity and drives the, the, the pleasure, where we seek pleasure in this world, it has to start in human hearts that make and control the city. Babylon is the world that human hearts have created apart from God and against God. It's the great enemy of God from the beginning to the very end of time. You see, Babylon has always been here. Babylon started with the thought of defiance in Lucifer before he was cast out of heaven. It was in the Garden of Eden when the snake caused Adam and Eve to question the goodness and greatness of God. Babylon was there when Cain decided that he knew better than God and murdered his brother. Babylon was there when the people of Babel erected a great tower to reach heaven on their own accord. Babylon was the reason for the first great judgment, the flood. Babylon continues through biblical history. Babylon was there when Herod slaughtered the innocent children in the hopes of maintaining his power. Babylon was there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter thought he knew better than God's plan and purposes and he cleft off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Babylon was there when Ananias and Sapphira decided to lie about the sale of their property. And Babylon was there in the Corinthian church with all of their immorality. It's everywhere in the Bible. And Babylon is here today. It's in Evanston. It's in this room. We're awash in it. It not only confronts us when we walk out the door every morning, it, it floods our thoughts the moment we wake up. I was disciplined a lot as a child, deservedly so, and I probably deserved more. I know I deserved more. But there are two times of discipline that really stand out for me in my late, later teen years. And without getting into details, I was being a punk. I was selfish. I was short-sighted. And I was really, really hurting people. And my father sat me down two times, sat me down, it wasn't a, there was no punishment, but he sat me down and he, he, said, he said this to me two times in my life, and I will never forget both of them. He looked me in the eye and said, son, you're living like Esau. Remember Esau? The guy who was so about himself and so short-sighted that he sold his birthright, he sold his name for a bowl of stew. What my dad was getting at is he realized that my heart was in Babylon and my actions were a result of coming from the same place. You see, Babylon isn't only our context where we live apart from God, it's also the content of our character as human beings, who we are against God. 
Babylon is the disposition and the destination and all the action resulting from human hearts set on their own desires and against God. Let me say that again. Babylon is the disposition and the destination and all the action resulting from human hearts set on their own desires and against God. That is what Babylon is. You know, here at Evanston Bible Fellowship, we have something we call our ethos statements. There are five statements that combined, we say, define who we are and who we want to be. So it's not only talking about the truth of who we, we see ourselves being, but it's also aspirational. It's who we aspire to be. Well, in a very similar way, Babylon, the concept of Babylon, is a rebellious and satanic ethos statement for humanity. It's what humans are and how we want to be apart from and against God, which leads to actions that dishonor God and harm others. Now, when we look at this passage, I think it's very fair and it's important for us to debate the particular embodiment of Babylon in this, this last time. That's an important conversation. And there's lots of room to have that discussion. But what's clear is the spirit and nature of Babylon. It is against God, it is against his people, and it has destroyed lives from the beginning of time. You know, it's interesting to note that this song is the longest song in the book of Revelation. The wedding, the wedding uh, song of the Lamb gets two verses. The fall of Babylon gets 20. Something's going on here. You know, the readers who first read this, I'm sure they would have understood that this was a type of Song of Doom that was repeated from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah when they did the same thing and they pronounced the same thing over Babylon and Tyre during their day. But, but it's more than that. It chronicles the downfall of the great enemy of God that has brought death to its followers and death to God's family. So it's worth taking note and heeding the lessons from fallen Babylon. But what happened? Verse 2. We don't know. We don't know what happened. We just know it's gone. It's gone. There's nothing there. Verse 2 describes a ghost town. Everything that the world had to offer, everything that the world had to offer, all its power, all its prestige, all its pleasure, all its prosperity is gone. It's gone. And then why, did it, why is it gone? Well, look at verse 3. It's because of Babylon's pursuit, unbridled pursuit, of pleasure and power and prosperity. And as that is pursued, it leads to immorality. And out of immorality comes injustice and oppression, which automatically places it against God and His will and purposes for this world. So God is justified, very justified in judging and destroying her. She's getting exactly what she deserves. Babylon's gone instantly. And those who have given themselves to the pursuit of the great prostitute are left hopeless and afraid. Let's look at their responses. Jump down to verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in the fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you might... You mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Let 
the kings of the earth lament this loss. It's an intense morning. It's an intense morning. These people have committed great sin in the pursuit of the promise of Babylon. Great sin in the pursuit of, the, of prestige and power. But notice they're not mourning for Babylon. They're mourning for themselves. It's a selfish mourning over their own loss. The promise that had been offered by, the, by Babylon is gone forever. They were all in and they lost it all. And they mourn. And notice how they mourn. Far off, alone, and afraid. But it's more than just those who lusted after power. Look who else is mourning. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wearers who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Remember, these merchants had given themselves over completely to the great prostitute. And again, they don't mourn for Babylon. They're mourning for themselves. It's over their own loss. Look at verse 11. They weep and mourn because no one buys their cargo. Verse 14, that which Babylon and their souls long for is gone. You see, Babylon starts with and flourishes by and ends with self-centered ambition. But for those who fully embrace Babylon, it gets worse. The condition gets worse, much worse. Look at verse 13 again. Read verse 13, just to yourself. You see, living in Babylon, giving yourself to the wholehearted pursuit of your desires will always end in dehumanization, oppression, and injustice. Brothers and sisters, when you catalog a human being with such good goods as cinnamon and sheep, You've lost your humanity. That's living in Babylon. Babylon is a place where everyone is out for their own gain at any cost, and nothing matters, not even other people. And the ironic thing is it will ultimately take everything from a person at the cost of their everlasting life. And that's where these merchants find themselves. But even more than that, even more than the people who live there, the people who dabble with her and traded with her are lost in mourning. Their, their source of hope and comfort is gone. These folks are in the same exact boat. And that was my very bad dad pun that I promised my daughters I would work in. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 17b. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all who trade is on the sea, stood afar off and cried as they saw smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all the ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you 
against her. The shippers lament from a distance. Again, it's all gone. The promise of comfort and hope and ease are gone. Babylon has failed. It's failed everyone who lives there, who vacations there, who trades there. Anyone who has anything to do with Babylon is now bankrupt, lost, and alone. But what's interesting in this, this uh, part where the, sh- the, uh, the people on ships are talking is there's a, a strange thing that happens. In the middle of it all, in the middle of the lament, there's a call to rejoice. You see that in verse 20? It's called rejoice. Heaven, all of heaven, and the saints are to rejoice over God's judgment. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think the answer comes in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is why we're supposed to rejoice. But there's reasons why we're supposed to rejoice when we read this, because it reminds us of things that have happened in the past. You see, this passage is a direct reference to the end of Jeremiah 51, where God commands the prophet to cast a stone and a scroll into the Euphrates to signal that ancient Babylon would sink and rise no more. And you know what happened? Babylon sank and rose no more. The Babylon of ancient ancient times has never existed in the form it has. So this millstone being cast in the sea points to God sovereignly ending the reign of Babylon. Not just once, but now forever. God's people rejoice because God keeps his promises and God wins forever. That's a good reason to rejoice. But this millstone imagery also calls to mind Matthew 18, 6 and 7, where the Lord Jesus himself says, But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world, codename for Babylon, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. We rejoice because God wins, but we rejoice because our great tempter and our great t- tormentor is no more. And no more will be. At the end of the world, followers of Jesus Christ will be jo- rejoice because our promise-keeping God has won. And we are safe. That is the reason we rejoice. Now, just to make sure the readers understand the extent of the desolation and the the cost of this desolation, John continues with verses 22 to 24. Look at that. I'll start in 21, the second half of 21. So Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Now listen. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants 
were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. At the end of time, we see God speaking again. No more. No more. Everything about Babylon will be judged and destroyed. All that she created, all of her creative impulse, all that she has made, all of her craftsmanship, all of the enlightenment that she has given, all of the relational ties that she has seemed to create, anything and everything attached to Babylon will be judged and destroyed. And again, to make sure we understand why this is happening, look at verses 23b and 24. What is the reason for this judgment? She promoted personal gain regardless of the cost and led the people of the world to their destruction. That's what Babylon has done. She's always stood against God and his people and she's guilty of slaying this, his people. She's deceived all nations for all time, bringing death and damnation. And then look at the end of verse 24. Babylon the great is responsible for all murder on earth. God judges. Babylon ends. The people of the world lament. Heaven rejoices. That's the story. But we have a part to play. God's people have a part to play. We're not done yet. There's one last thing that we need to consider. Go back to verse 4. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measurement of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The people of God at the end of time have a very clear, clear call. Come out of Babylon. You see, Babylon is where they lived. But where are their hearts and where are their souls? The message is clear. Get out. Babylon is about to get exactly what she deserves. And you don't want any part of this judgment. You don't want it. Get out. The question for God's people in the future, and the question really for all of us today is simple. Where are you? Where are you going? Where are you putting your hope? I'm not talking intellectual hope where we understand. I'm talking our heart hope. Where are we putting our chips? What are we betting on in life? Where are we, where are we looking to, to find our, our prosperity, to find our comfort, to find our ease, to find our hope? There's only two choices. It's clear there's only two choices. 
And when you align yourself with Babylon, and when you give yourself to the wholehearted pursuit of pleasure and of power and prosperity, here's what you're doing. You're buying into a lie, a lie from Satan that he started. It's all about me. I am God. This Babylon thinking has been around since the beginning, and God has spoken against it in his word since the beginning. It's all over Scripture. We've already talked about Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They've said these same exact words to the Israelites. Come out of Babylon. And Jesus and his apostles call us, as as Jesus' disciples, to come out of the world. Another word for Babylon, a system that doesn't reflect God's love and enslaves all of mankind. Listen, listen to what Jesus says. In John 17, 16, he, he's talking about disciples. He's talking about us. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Babylon. 1 John 2, 15 is clear as well. Do not love the world. This is for us. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Describing religion... James puts it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's easier to talk about visiting orphans and widows. That's something we can do. But we're called to keep ourselves unstained from the world. You see, being a child of God through faith in Jesus means that each of us in this room, if that is true for us, we are called out as individuals. And we as a church are called out as a people. You can't stay in Babylon and follow Jesus. You can't. Because if you do, if you make Babylon your pursuit, what's going to happen? It's inevitable. You will end up participating in dehumanizing injustice and oppression and living in opposition to God. The pursuit of this good life that Babylon offers destroys people. It destroys a person as they destroy others trying to get it. God hates this. He hates it, and he will judge it. So brothers and sisters, let's not stay in Babylon. Every day, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have a choice. We can stay in Babylon, or we can go to Jerusalem You see, in chapter 21, in a few chapters, we're going to see this new blood-bought city, the final home for God and his people. And you know what it's going to be like there? It's going to be the way it's supposed to be, forever and ever. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why he lived a life of a perfect obedience, and he died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, that I deserve. That's why he was raised again from the dead. Jesus was providing us all a way out of Babylon and a way home to Jerusalem. The choice is simple and the choice is clear. We can stay in Babylon and it will destroy you as you destroy others. Or we can go to Jerusalem And it will save you as you point others to the Savior. Come out. Come out. Come home. What are you hoping in today?
I hope that our hearts echo the words of Edward Mote when he said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, let's all come out of Babylon. Let's come home. Pray with me. Father, we confess that the call to power and prestige and prosperity and is, is, is powerful. It's a siren song in our hearts. It's our natural state of our hearts apart from you. We thank you that Jesus came and gave us a way home. I pray that all of us as a people, as individuals, and as a people, as a church, we will choose to come out of Babylon and to come home. Father, show us the bankruptcy of Babylon. Show us the beauty of Jesus in Jerusalem. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.